once you go through the accountability process, then the healing begins. If you don't do that and you ignore the pain, that's not healing. That's denial. That's pushing things under the rug. And again, the ways in which America has failed to deal with this white supremacy issue manifests itself in the ways that we deal with people globally. So we hurt ourselves and we ultimately hurt people. That's the voice of Terrell Germain Starr, founder and host of the foreign policy podcast, Black Diplomats. He's today's guest on Press the Button, a Plowshares Fund podcast dedicated to nuclear policy and national security. And now, here are your co-hosts, Michelle Dover and Tom Kalina. Welcome back to Press the Button. I sit down with Terrell Germain Starr, the host of Black Diplomats, a weekly foreign policy podcast devoted to Black and people of color-led conversations on safety and national security. We talk about what the Biden-Harris inauguration means for the undercurrents of militarism and white supremacy in our country that we saw so vividly on display earlier this month, and how the way we approach domestic issues bleeds over into our foreign policy in ways that not everyone realizes. And if you like what you hear, remember to hit subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth from our listeners is what drives this. So thank you, thank you, thank you. But with that, let's get into today's episode. The clock is ticking. Terrell Germain Starr is the host of Black Diplomats, a weekly podcast devoted to Black and people of color-led conversations on safety and national security. You might have also seen his reporting at The Root, where he's a senior reporter and writes about the 2020 election cycle and foreign policy, mostly U.S. relations with Ukraine and Russia. Terrell, I am thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for taking time from your travels in Uzbekistan to call in. Hey, of course, I'm, I'm happy to be here. We're 10 hours ahead, by the way, for those who are curious. <laughs> I hope I hope your day is starting starting out well and that the uh, future hours ahead of us look good. Yeah, hope so. me, me too. <laughs> so let's just start with the inauguration. And with the news from Georgia, we are now finally approaching the end of this election cycle. You've been covering this from the beginning. What's your big takeaway? Well, uh, the big takeaway is that you have two Democrats and John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock, who definitely believe in diplomacy and uh, have anti-war mindsets, particularly as it pertains to Iran. Uh, You'll have two people entering the uh, U.S. Senate who will most likely, again, they'll, they'll support the Iran deal. They'll definitely uh, be very proactive in ensuring that the Biden administration moves into not only a um, new start, but to create a new uh, policy treaty with Russia that we that I think um, people who are watching these parts of the world from, from a from a non-proliferation perspective uh, can lead to a more um, to, to a more workable relationship. The, the other thing is that we see a lot of of America's flaws, uh, you know, even before that, right? We, we saw America's flaws, but we see that 
um, many people in America, uh, many white people, you just have to call it out for what it is, do not care in democracy, do not care about national security. They care about their security, right? And so it just unravels this idea of American exceptionalism that dictates to the rest of the world that we have the moral fiber and character to know what's best for you. We have the moral fiber and character to determine what safety is. And so out of the victories in Georgia came success for those in the non-proliferation world, but it also shows you the hypocrisy of the American exceptionalist uh, mindset and framework that suggests that Washington gets to determine who in the world has a right to determine what safety is and isn't. You know, I, I'm so glad you said this because I was going to say, you know, the this week we're going to be seeing the Biden-Harris administration take office. And I think with it, there's a lot of people out there who will be breathing a sigh of relief that President Trump will no longer have sole authority to launch nuclear weapons. But to your point, you know, while the symptom is lessening the illness, the militarism, exceptionalism and white supremacy that has led to these outcomes is still there. So what do we do about it? We have to divest from neoliberalism, right? So, and, it's, and that's not a partisanship. That's not a Democrat issue or a Republican issue. America has become too devoted to this idea of allowing the uh, an unchecked um, free market to determine job security, to, de to determine um, safety, to determine security. So when you think about neoliberalism in, in, in um, our military industrial complex, for example, uh, think about the fact that so much of our uh, military budget, our objectives, uh, who determines uh, the type of spending uh, that, that takes place in the Pentagon is all predicated on politicians from all parties who rely on uh, defense spending, well, defense, um, defense dollars and defense contributions. So, and, and, and it's interesting when you talk to elected officials the way that, uh, that I do, you, you, you begin to realize that one, there's a very lazy thinking about what defines safety and security. So you can even talk about Democrats, for example, when you think about, um, crime. So, Many people, many elected officials, and this dates back to the 70s, the 80s with the war, you know, with the war on drugs, for example, uh, they get into office by saying that we're going to be tough on crime. We're going to throw more police at the problem. We're going to throw more cops on the street. And so there is never a real challenging and robust intellectual conversation about urban planning or schooling or about uh, public about housing insecurity, about food insecurity. And so the idea is to just throw more police and everything. Why am I saying this? Because this very domestic mindset of using more police carries over into the foreign affairs component where we say, okay, if there's a country out there who we don't like and we don't have uh, the patience to deal with them or we determine that they're not somebody that we can benefit from, then we throw more military at them, right? So so, 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 so you also think about the idea that there are a lot of elected officials who look at defense jobs uh, in their districts as job growth and job security. And so we know that according to the, um, the war project at, uh, at Boston University, that 
that uh, defense jobs do not equal, a, you know, it's, it's not a reliable job creator. So it, it stems from decades of neoliberal mindset on security. And so both parties are going to have to divest from that if they really are going to make any headway into the very issues that we are dealing with. So I think that it is going to require people to become more creative is going, you know, is really pushing um, both sides to really take a, a, a really hard look at white supremacy. So when we see the um, the impeachment uh, process taking place, you'll see a lot of people, it was na- main, mainly Republicans, but you'll also find some Democrats, they use the words healing and the country needs to move on. Joe Biden has said that. And, you know, as somebody who grows, who has grown up, you know, in the hood, in the hood per se, or who grew up around violence and somebody who's understood urban planning, uh, you, you know, you really... Uh, you know, growing up and and looking at the people around me who entered the drug business um, and who uh, went to prison for for violent crime, my my process of forgiving the people who impacted me, it it starts with accountability, right? It starts with people saying that I harmed you and I'm sorry and I want to um, go through the process so that you feel more secure and feel safer. Once you go through the once you go through the accountability process, then the healing begins. If you don't do that and you ignore the pain, that's not healing. That's denial. That's pushing things under the rug. And again, the ways in which America has failed to deal with this white supremacy issue manifest itself in the ways that we deal with people globally. So we hurt ourselves and we ultimately hurt people. So America is in a very uh, self-destructive relationship with itself. And because of its its, its robust uh, hegemonic influence in the rest of the world, our allies and you know people like Iran and in Russia that have a very complex and nuanced um, dynamics in their own societies, they're being unwittingly harmed by that as well. And it, and it makes for, for, uh, for poor foreign policy because we have poor domestic policy. Okay, at this point, I just have to give a plug for this latest episode on your podcast, Black Diplomats, that you did with Latasha Brown, the co-founder of uh, Black Voters Matter. And what I really appreciated about it was getting into these um, relationships between how this mindset of, you know, using violence in order to keep the peace. We do it at home and we do it abroad. And so how do you, for you, do, do nuclear weapons fit into that? Because I know in a lot of my studies, people like to to put them on this pedestal as a, a weapon apart, right? You know, I mean, just even the classification of, a, oh, it's a weapon of mass destruction. How do you see those fitting in? Well, well for starters, I, you know, I recently interviewed Bar- uh, Congresswoman Bar- Barbara Lee, who said that nuclear weapons are an equal uh, opportunity destroyer. So it doesn't matter what color you are, right? It, it doesn't matter your creed, doesn't matter your religion. If a bomb drops, it's not going to discriminate against somebody because of how they look um, and, or, or anything like that. But it, it, it just it, it's really a 
the nuclear weapon is a manifestation, again, of America's relationship with violence. And so it determined America has determined that because we have the biggest guns, because we have the largest military, we can decide on who is a threat and who isn't. So just as American nuclear posture determines that Iran is a threat, that Russia is a threat, that North Korea is a threat, mind you, the same type of culture, the lack of cultural understanding and, 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 and know-how that many U.S. lawmakers and policymakers have about black people, about our Latinx communities, about our non-white uh, population, that transfers over into the foreign policy element, right? And so I think that with nuclear weapons, you think think about the costs of it, right? Think about, uh, I'll give you a prime example. So when you think about, uh, I'll give you a defund the police example and, and tie that to um, the ground mid-course system, right? So there is a recent, um, there was a New York Times study or analysis that determined that many police departments around America do not spend a majority of their time pursuing crime or pursuing work that um, that deals with uh, people who commit violent acts. Much of that time, in fact, deals with traffic tickets. It deal it deals with the it deals with issues that don't require armed uh, law enforcement and. When you think about divesting from that system, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are going to completely take away our away the enforcement capacity. So it, it, it simply means that you're taking more money from this from from this idea of safety, you know, something that you think makes you feel safe. You're looking at the budget and saying, hey, we can take this 20 percent and 30 percent of people who are doing traffic violation, and everything is and, and put people who don't have weapons in these roles, uh, take away the responsibility of police officers to respond to mental health crises and replace them with healthcare workers. And here's another thing. It also presumes that a person who has a, a mental health problem is automatically going to respond with violence, which is not true. So how does that tie into nuclear weapons? The same mentality, as long as I have a nuclear weapon, that makes me feel safe. And we all know that that's not true. I'll give you, and I'm bringing up the ground mid-course system, for example. Hundreds of millions of dollars, um, and, and in fact, it may be may well be billions at this point, has been devoted to a ground mid-course system that does not work. And for those who are listening who don't know what a ground mid-course system is, it's supposed to be the defense system that is supposed to shoot projectiles into the air to stop a warhead from making contact um, with, with U.S. territory. And we all know that the vast majority of those tests uh, is it, failed. And it in it, it, those ground mid-course system tests are planned. And we all know that when someone decides that they're going to attack America, there is not like uh, North Korea or, you know, uh, they're, they're going to call and say, hey, uh, Washington, we're going to drop you know, an ICBM or you soon or we're going to drop a submarine launch ballistic missile. Get ready so you can put that that throw that projectile that we know doesn't work. You know, we're, we're you know, get ready to shoot it. And, and let's just see how far it goes. No, they're not going to do that. And so it, we, 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 we have to um, think about the fact that we need to get rid of that all together. Now, people will say, how are we going to protect ourselves? Well, here's the thing. 
we never were, it never protected us anyway, because when someone drops, when someone delivers an ICBM and, you know, and it makes it over to where we are, more than one warhead is going to fall on us. And that ground mid-course system is not going to hit all of them. <laughs> okay, let, 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 let's just start there. So what is the alternative? Well, you know, we can talk our way into peace. Um, because the last time I checked, we could say whatever we want to say about Russian President Vladimir Putin. I don't think that he's suicidal. We can say what we want about the Iranian government in Tehran. I don't think they have a death wish either. They want to live. And Kim Jong-un, uh, uh, for all of the caricatures of the racist ones, mind you, and if you want to ask, we can get into that. The racist car caricatures of him as a child, the way that he is depicted in media, Yes, he is a, a a dictator, all those things. Yeah, that's true. But I don't think he wants a death wish either. And because ultimately, we're never going to be 100% secure. And a weapon is not going to assure that it never has. It didn't stop. It didn't stop the 9-11 attacks, right? So, and, and, and it doesn't stop any of these others. It doesn't, it doesn't prevent cyber attacks from happening. happening. It doesn't stop Russian interference. And so, the world has realized that, yes, you have a military. Yes, you have the nuclear bomb, but we can destroy you in other ways. And it's effective and it's destabilizing. And so people really need to rethink what makes them feel safe. And if it, if, if we haven't gotten to the point where the nuclear bomb has not prevented COVID-19, that it has not prevented cyber attacks, that it has not prevented uh, political interference, then... We need to rethink who, as an American people, we're sending to Washington because we need some new thinking there. I'll bring up uh, North Korea and I'll also bring up uh, Iran. So the very nature of American U.S. Uh, nuclear posture is racist. OK, and the reason why is that. U.S. nuclear posture, it determines who is a threat and who isn't. But here's and most importantly, it determines that Iran and North Korea and Russia are not entitled to feel threatened. Okay. And what, and what does that mean? It, it means that we don't have to respect the concerns of people who we've designated to be terrorists. And we often do that without even thinking about it. So for example, let's go to North Korea. People, Americans decide which people become a problem. So we can, even though the hijackers of the planes that flew into uh, the buildings here on September 11th of 2001 come from Saudi Arabia, does that stop America from conducting business from with Saudi Arabia? Does Has that ever prevented us from selling weapons to Saudi Arabia? No, it hasn't, right? And so we know that we can also be in a position where we can say, okay, North Korea, we can negotiate a, you know, a truce on nuclear issues while still holding sanctions against the, the North Korean government over its human rights abuses. So you can walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. And for whatever reason, America has decided that, we're not going to provide that nuance to North Korea. We're not going to provide that nuance to Iran. 
we're not going well we do it with russia more or less but basically we're not going to provide we're not going to provide this nuance to um mainly to north korea and to iran and here's the reason why the u.s elections are so important so so much of our uh approach towards uh, more, more so towards uh iran than it is uh north korea there's this religious orthodoxy about protecting Israel, right? And and the reality is that most American white American evangelicals don't give a damn about about uh, uh about Israel's national security. Israel is a proxy through which white evangelicals who, who heavily support um conservative uh members of Congress as a means to strengthen their own uh orthodoxy about Christian faith. So it's not about Israeli national security. With Raphael Warnock entering the Senate, you're going to have a religious moral uh, force on the Democratic side, an anti-war moral force that will push back against the religious orthodoxy of conservative militarism towards Iran. And so it's not so much about the technicalities of what Iran can do and what it can't do or, or North Korea. It's really about the narrative that we create about who's the enemy and who is not, right? So we all, the both of us can get into the technicalities, uh, Michelle, about, okay, we know that Iran, you know, they're enriching uranium up to 20%. They made that announcement. So we can get into the technicalities about that, but it's not really about that. It isn't. It's not. It, it, it's, it's, it's really about the narrative. And ultimately, we need an enemy. The United States needs an adversary because it plays into this model of protecting the homeland. And it goes into this idea of protecting the white, um, the white patronage of the American citizen. That's what it is about. It needs someone to fight. And for many people in U.S. in, in, in U.S. politics, if you don't have an enemy, you really don't have a reason to exist. So. What you do is that you create these racist caricatures about people, very similarly, similarly to how the insurrectionists in Washington waged war essentially against his own country because they were not happy with the fact that black people were self-determining in Georgia. Who could have thought that Georgia would be a competitive state? that it turned blue in one instance is not a real blue state, it's a purple state, but it turned blue this year, but black people were self-determined. And so that's what those insurrectionists were fighting against in Washington. It manifests itself in foreign policy. So speaking of enemies, you know, at the time we have left, I wanna talk about Russia. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you're you're calling in from uh, Uzbekistan. You travel frequently throughout the former Soviet Union, and you're a, a scholar um, of this region. As you know, Joe Biden needs to extend New START, the last remaining arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia before February 5th. But other than that, it seems like the U.S. is likely to not look at Russia favorably, especially given the news of the solar winds hack. Um, what do you think the new administration needs to keep in mind? And I think more broadly, what do you think Americans miss when it comes to understanding the Russian government's behavior? Let's deal directly with the, the recent hack or news of it, right? And I'm probably going to have a lot of people push back against this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. 
this recent hack is ultimately inconsequential. It, 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 when it comes to the grand scheme of things of our long-term relationship with the Kremlin, this recent hack is inconsequential because we're going to have to work with them anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, and all the, all, in, in regards to New Start, America is going to have to make a decision on at what point do we believe that our current stockpile is more than enough and that Russia can go on doing whatever it wishes, but we are going to go towards a path of peace. Uh, it should reconsider pursuing Obama's sincere effort for a nuclear-free world. And what do I mean by that? Under the Obama administration, we've seen the fewer cuts to the arsenal in regards to retirement of um, nuclear warheads. And I'm not talking about the New START Treaty in regards to the reductions of deployed um, warheads. I'm talking about our overall stockpiles, right? I'm talking about the idea that the number of retired um, warheads and dismantling of, of weapons. So it, it happened the least under Obama. And the reason being is that unlike Ronald Reagan, who was dealing with a Gorbachev or who was dealing with or, you know, or the previous presidents um, before Putin, uh, you dealt with somebody who ultimately didn't want to play ball. Right. So Obama, it was a matter of bad timing in many respects. Uh, so that's that's my opinion about it. But moving forward, you're, you're going to be dealing with people who are experienced in dealing with Moscow. Uh, a, a very, you know, it, it's just you're going to deal with the bare minimum of of, of competent leadership. Um, <laughs> but so, so that's going to happen. But what, what, the, what do Americans get wrong? Americans too often don't respect the fact that we are not that much different from Russia in regards to being an imperial power. So in 2016, when Russia met, when, when, when the Kremlin meddled in the U S election, people responded to it with shock and with condemnation. And my response was, Russia is an imperial nation. They're supposed to do that, okay? That's what imperial nations do. That's what America does. It inserts its influence around the world. And that includes interfering. So it, 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 it's, it's almost as if we don't know, we, we, it's good for the rest of the world, but it's not good for us. Now, I'm not saying that I approve or I want it, um, a foreign country to meddle in our election. But my response to Americans is, how do you think other nations feel about America meddling in their affairs? And so that's very difficult for Americans to process. And again, it goes back to this very privileged, arrogant, uh, hegemonic mindset that America has always had. And then Russia for the first time for many Americans told you that we can play that game too. So we really have to realize that we have to ask ourselves, how much neoliberalism do we want? And what type of course do we want to go down in order so that does not happen? That doesn't include more weapons. And so with, with Russia, you know, it, it's, it's important to note that they have their own views of the world, right? So, for example, I don't necessarily agree with Russia, um, not necessarily agree. Russia was completely wrong for invading uh, Ukraine. And so the sanctions need to be stronger. Obama should have provided more uh, weapons to Ukraine so it could defend itself. I, and also, 
America can't do it by itself. America cannot really have a robust policy towards Russia without European Union support. So, but 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 there's another thing too. We also have to understand what our uh, what Russia wants. Russia has long felt surrounded by NATO. Russia has always felt threatened, and so even though you're not going to necessarily get Russia what it wants, you need to understand their fears. You need to understand what their concerns are. And it just can't be this painted brush of we're going to get 100% of what we want and Russia isn't. And just from a pure power dynamic standpoint, that's not going to completely happen because Russia has leverage over us in certain ways. And so in, in, in another thing too, there's so many business ties between Russia and America and Russia and the European Union. And so you're going to have to look at your business community and say, for the sake of America and our country, is it worth conducting business with Russian oligarchs who violate the integrity of American political institutions? So it's a wide ranging issue, again, that deals with neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is the main flaw here. And if we divest from that, then war is going to be less of an option. But th th there's a problem with too many Americans who believe that if we use violence, then that's going to protect us. And as Russia showed us, we don't have to use our military. We can just hack you to death and make you miserable because they've been doing that for much of their existence. <laughs> you know, so, so, so they don't have to use a military against us in order, to, in order to, uh, to, to destabilize us and feel weak. And so it requires some new thinking. And I'm not, I'm not even sure if the Biden administration, because they're very neoliberal and they're very centrist in their own politics and their own approaches of the world. So I'm not sure that they're going to break away from that anytime soon. But if I were advising um, uh, this administration I had, and if anybody would listen to me, I would go down that path because, you know, being, you know, tough against, you know, Russia, it doesn't work with them because again, they already feel like they're these, they already feel like they're disrespected. And, and, and it's very difficult for a lot of people to hear, but we can be forceful in using sanctions against Russia, but also being able to work with them on um, nuclear weapons non-proliferation. Because here's the thing, they can't really afford, you know, their, their country, there are so many people in their country, they're in poverty too. They need divestment as well. So all of this time, and I'll close with saying this, in all of the media attention that has been directed towards the Russians, quote unquote, and the, and the Kremlin, quote unquote, we don't know a damn thing about Russian culture. We don't know a damn thing about Russians in their day-to-day -day life. Where and, and we see that's gotten us anywhere. And so if we take this, this non-neoliberal approach, then we'll begin to understand what they want. And that's going to lead us to more peace. Whether or not the Biden administration will take a more nuanced approach remains to be seen. But I think that based on the events that's happening here in the United States, what's happening around the world, I think that's the more viable option. Terrell, I could talk to you for a lot longer, but this podcast, unfortunately, has time limits. Where can our listeners go to find Black Diplomats? Okay, so Black Diplomats is a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. And you can download the podcast on your favorite platforms, particularly Apple Podcasts, Spotify, for example. But we're available on all platforms. 
Look, search for Black Diplomats and you will find us. And you should also consider contributing to our Patreon also under Black Diplomats. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining and safe travels. Thank you.